below and above by Tom Malik. Let's say, putting reason aside, that we could divide the history of clouds in two, those who find themselves below the clouds and those who choose to live above them. This history would be as eccentric and dangerous as any other, and perhaps even more so, since the fate of those who find themselves underneath the clouds is to continually look upwards into the glare, inventing ways to anticipate and predict who or what might fall from above, while the fate of those above is to continually look down, wondering if or when they might, at any moment, need a place to land. Those below live without knowing whether the clouds will bring misfortune or relief. Those above live without knowing what plans are being made on the ground and what they might be missing out on. This history becomes less hypothetical when we turn to pictorial traditions, which have allowed the imagination to ascend and descend long before it became technologically possible for bodies to do so. Clouds were surely events for the most ancient imaginations, not only for the obvious reason that they are harbingers of weather and constantly changing in shape and color before the eyes, but also because they seem so close to the quality of a dream or thought, real but elusive, prone to dispersing as quickly as they form, connected and disconnected from the earth, obscuring and then revealing a view. Is it for this reason that clouds could often appear in pictorial histories as expressions of the painters in our life? Fiction whirling into fact, moods externalized, where weather and myth meet, and the message of all kinds are sought, conjured, ignored, and lost. The history of being below or above is also a history of travel, not only through the clouds, but on them. Painters from the Middle Ages on often depicted clouds as transports for angels, cherubs, or saints, who visit the earth with messages or deeds before returning to heaven. This tradition lives on in video games and cartoons, where a cloud becomes a trampoline for bouncing, or a vehicle for flying, or a shorthand for conflict, as in a cartoon ball. In this tradition, the cloud allows for movement, sometimes battle, between the world above and the world below. This makes clouds into sites where animals, objects, goodies and baddies meet, become entangled, and sometimes swap roles. Or is it helpful to think of clouds, as the art historian Abby Warburg wrote in a different context, as bigwets, baywork, moving or animated accessories? Similar to fluttering garments or curtains, flying carpets, or hair caught in a gust of wind. Clouds add effective intensities and drama to an image, breathing motion, action, and agitation into pictorial space. If you enter the Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi, for example, look closely at Giotto's fresco, depicting the death and ascension of St. Francis. Above a crowd of friars gathered around the body, Francis can be seen again from the waist up, palms raised, rising on a windswept cloud, with the help of winged angels. This cloud is notable not only for its introduction of weather into European pictorial space, but also for the appearance of a face, possibly with horns, visible within the cloud. If Giotto, or one of his students, did indeed hide a demon in there, it points to a long tradition of clouds as mimetic forms capable of shape-shifting. It also shows the clouds as a dialectical device, where rising to heaven 
is not without its risks, for who knows who else might be hitching a ride. It is for this metamorphic quality that clouds were sometimes associated with demonology. Michael Salus, an 11th century Byzantine monk, equated the bodies of demons and spirits with cloud formations, writing in his dialogue on the operation of demons. Hence, just as up there, in the air, we observe the clouds on the semblance and form, now of men, now of bears, now of dragons, now of other sorts of animals, less also the bodies of spirits do. And if one of the defining qualities of clouds is their constant morphine, becoming this and then that, it is worth asking how today's clouds differ to those of yesterday. At this point, demons seem to be everywhere, above and below, and even what we might call secularist clouds. This is how John Ruskin, writing in the 19th century, was thinking of them. Not much escaped the classification imposed during Ruskin's time, including clouds, and the critic was a keen observer of the sky, seeking to ascribe a new visual language to clouds befitting of his time. Whereas the medieval never painted a cloud, but with the purpose of placing an angel upon it, he wrote in modern painters, we should think the appearance of an angel in the cloud wholly unnatural, and should be seriously surprised by meeting a god anywhere. We have no belief that the clouds contain more than so many inches of rain or hail, that even Ruskin had a hard time shaking the demonic. When he delivered his famous 1884 lectures, The Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, some critics thought he was blaming air pollution on the devil, while others believed he was referring to the devil of industrialization. As Ruskin's observations of the sky revealed, classifications would need to contend with new clouds, brought about by a plague wind, that looks partly as if it were made of poisonous smoke and partly of dead men's souls, flitting hither and thither, doubting themselves of the fittest place for them. Maybe this sounds all too Victorian to our ears, an instance of trying to make moral sense from below of the changes happening above, or maybe it is confirmation that clouds, too, are always reflections, changing those who observe and represent them, and bringing down from on high what in fact may have originated below. <laughs>